lot of developers and communities do go above ground because it's the easiest way to detain water. Um, but again, as we as we get further into this discussion, you'll see the need for subsurface detention is becoming more common. Welcome to the Placemaking Podcast. Podcast. The show geared at helping real estate developers learn and understand important aspects of the development process while improving communities one at a time. Each week, we'll discuss major facets of the real estate development process with industry professionals. Now, here's your host, Matthew Lowe's. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 36 of the Placemaking Podcast. I am excited to share this next conversation with all of you today. Steve Messina graduated from The Ohio State University back in 2007, majoring in structural engineering. And after college, Steve moved to Indiana to work for one of the top steel manufacturers in the United States, Steel Dynamics as a construction manager and engineer responsible for overseeing the construction of new and existing facilities. After working for SDI for over nine years and holding several positions, Steve made a transition to advanced drainage systems and relocated to Fort Worth, Texas. Now in this episode, we're gonna discuss the need to provide stormwater detention on your next development project, the various ways the stormwater detention can be handled as well as pros and cons of utilizing subsurface stormwater detention. Don't worry, we're not going to get too far in the weeds. There's loads of great information in this episode, and I greatly appreciate Steve for taking the time out of his busy schedule to discuss this topic of stormwater detention with me. I always like to talk shop with fellow engineers. So as always, if you have enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the show and share with your friends in the industry. I promise there will be more exciting conversations on the shows to come. So without further ado, let's start the show. Hey, welcome to the show, Steve. Matt, how you doing today? I'm doing well. Glad to have you on here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, I said I gave you a little introduction before the show, told the, told the listeners a little bit about yourself. But if you could, just in your own words, just give us a little more about Steve and then... Uh, you know, that transition that into ADS where you're at now. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, I appreciate it again. Thanks for having me on today. Uh, a little bit about me. I graduated from the Ohio state university back in 2007. So for all those fellow Buckeyes out there, uh, OH, um, I, uh, I graduated with a structural engineering degree and, uh, following school, I, I ended up going to work for one of the top, steel manufacturers in the United States and uh, chose that route. You know, it was it was pretty enticing to me to go more into the uh, construction and project management field uh, rather than just into straight design. And uh, it was pretty cool. Really, really neat opportunity with with the company that I work for. And uh, for for roughly nine years, I worked for them and I I helped build steel mills. So it was it was a pretty neat job. Yeah. And uh, four years ago, I ended up taking a job with ADS and uh, moved from Indiana to Fort Worth, Texas. And so for the last four years, I've been uh, what my title is called as an engineered product manager and uh, where I cover a variety of engineered products under the ADS umbrella. Obviously, one being detention products, which is why we're talking today. But um, so that's what I've been doing for the last four years. Awesome. I, I always like to ask this question to fellow engineers, but uh, what, 
what got you interested in structural engineering? So, uh, you know, my dad was uh, a mechanical engineering major and, uh, and also metallurgical. And growing up, I told my dad, I, I saw how much he worked and the stress that he was under. And I said, boy, I'm not, I never want to do what my dad does, right? And so here I am, you know, roughly 30 years later, doing, doing similar exactly. <laughs> work to what my dad did, right? So he had a huge influence on me, most certainly. Uh, but uh, I actually started off in architecture at Ohio State, and uh, just because I loved the design aspect um, of, of just everything. And, and so uh, I got into that program, and shortly after, I just knew that architecture just didn't suit me well. It was almost too artsy for me. And now, granted, I know there's a lot more to architecture than just that, but, uh, you know, I like to apply methodologies and, and have answers to problems and solutions. And so engineering was a much better suit for me. That makes sense. Yep. I, I hear that a lot, it, you know, at least civil structural. It's like, oh, I, I thought about architecture. I, maybe I joined the college for a bit and uh, realized it wasn't for me. Yeah. <laughs> You're at ADS now. And one of your product types is subsurface detention why why would somebody need detention on their site i mean that's a lot of times we field that question is why do i need to pay for this and uh so in a nutshell what what is your response to that well matt first and foremost if if someone doesn't need to store water underground um, i've actually encouraged people not to do it if they don't have to um, it's it's an added step uh, in a solution that can be achieved above ground, but we'll get into some of the disadvantages and advantages with each later. Um, but, you know, the specifically here on the north side of Dallas, where land is at a premium, right? Uh, the cost of land continues to increase. Undeveloped space is at a premium. The use of subsurface stormwater management facilities, what we call underground detention, system, detention systems, are increasing in popularity. And so where we've once put everything above ground, we just don't have enough room for that, especially in some of these really congested areas uh, where, you know, the cost of land most certainly is at a premium. Uh, you know, the cities, cities around here and in all parts of the country, as they grow and expand, developers are seeking to develop uh, new, new land and redevelop land that was maybe once used for something else. And so Obviously, they need to account for what happens when it rains. And uh, as many civil engineers know, the, the more impervious land that we have, meaning anywhere you've constructed a parking lot or a building, uh, that's more runoff that has to be accounted for. And so if you uh, basically have paved over your entire plot of land that you've purchased, you're most certainly going to have to store that water in a, uh, in a location. And so you can store it above ground or you can store it underground. And so uh, that's what obviously we'll talk about today. Now, a lot of people still can't fathom that. And, and what's gonna happen is if you don't account for stormwater runoff, you're gonna flood not only your site, but probably the adjacent sites uh, next to your land as well. So it's extremely important. It's frustrating for some developers because um, we've we've been in scenarios where someone has uh, put up a, a commercial site somewhere, and they didn't have to detain any stormwater runoff. 
maybe their site was the first site located in this area, right? And so there was enough impervious area around them um, uh, to account for drain, you know, th that one site that was developed. And then all of a sudden here comes in another site next to that one. And now they're required to detain water on site. We've gotten a lot of questions by developers wondering why me? Why am I the one that has to do it if my neighbor didn't have to do it? Well, guess what? Regulations change, right? We're developing more land all over the place. And so as we see that, this is most certainly gonna be something that is more common across the board. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it, what it boils down to, right, is is your your pre versus your post. So your your uh, runoff, stormwater runoff prior to you developing the site, is probably going to increase. So what's when when you build? So uh, basically, we're looking for the the delta. There is like, how do we get that developed flow below what was there originally? And like you said, that could be done several ways. But essentially, it boils down to detaining, so holding that water, releasing it at a time that allows the flow rate to re reduce below pre-developed. We're probably getting in the weeds a little bit for some that aren't as uh, used to this discussion. But like you said, it, it can be handled a number of ways. And, and you know, obviously, you want a design team on board early to determine what that impact is going to be. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's a part that uh, yeah you can get into the weeds very quick, Matt. And uh, I don't think we're we're here today to talk about overall sure. design, but um, it is it is interesting because there are it is so complex when you look at uh, just rainwater in general. Um, there's many different ways to calculate the computation methods of the amount of rainfall, which to some degree are just mathematical expressions of the hydrologic cycle. So if you look at precipitation, you look at runoff, you look at evaporation, you look at all those things and it's very complex. Bringing us uh, back fortunately, fortunately, we've got <laughs> we've got civil engineers to do that work. We've got programs that actually do the work for those civil engineers and, and computate everything so that we can make it more linear, right? Um, because if you've got this constant cycle of evaporation and, and soil moisture and groundwater, it is it is a little overwhelming to figure out where do I start, right? And that's why it is most certainly beneficial to get with a civil engineer early on to say, what do I need? Uh, because a lot of times, I mean, you'll, you, you'd be surprised at how many times I've heard that underground detention was the last thing that the owner thought about. And hopefully it's not not the last thing that the civil engineer thinks about, because that is most certainly part of the initial stormwater design. Um, but you got to take everything into account. And, uh, you know, we we generally um, put rainfall into a, we categorize it by its size, its intensity and duration. OK, and and so uh, for, for a lot of developers out there, you'll as you're talking with the civil engineer that you hired, you'll hear them talk about the 25 year storm event. You'll hear them talk about the 50 and that we have to design for the 100 year storm event. And that seems um, like overkill, right? The 100 year storm event. So if you if you said to yourself, okay, what does that mean? That's, that's a severe enough storm that happens once every 100 years. And you're gonna say, I have to design for that? 
uh, well, you can boil that down into its annual probability, right? So if it's going to happen once every 100 years, what does that mean for this year alone? Well, that's a 1% chance of that storm event actually happening this year. So it, it is important to make sure that we're we're not over-designing, but we're designing for the worst case scenario. And uh, for those locals, we know what has happened in Houston over the last few years with these hurricanes. And this is stuff that we didn't dream of happening, right? And uh, it's just unfortunate, but you can see that, you know, if we design for it properly, we can most certainly withstand these severe storm events. Now, I think that's more of an anomaly when you talk about these hurricanes off the coast, but uh, we see these really severe storm events across the country. Mm -hmm. So we talked about the, you talked about the 1% storm and I appreciate the 100 year storm. And a lot of times we'll want you to design for that. So when you're looking at laying out the site and, you know, you're, you're trying to come up with ways to get this preverse post delta, the, this volume of the 100 year storm abated. What are some ways that uh, you could do that on site? Sure. So uh, there are several different methods and then we can go into um, different products within those methods. And the first method is gonna be the most common. And that's, I say most common because it's nothing new. Um, everyone sees these every day, but they're just surface ponds, okay? and uh, And, the problem with surface ponds, obviously, is that they're taking up, they do take up a lot of land. They're easy to design uh, for engineers. They're easy for developers to understand. Uh, but, and, and they have their place in certain areas, okay? Um, they probably cost less um, upfront, but when you look at long-term maintenance costs, that's a little bit of a different story. And we'll, again, we'll get into that when we talk about uh, the cost associated with each type of method. However, due to site constraints, some sites may not be able to manage their stormwater volumes um, with above ground ponds, right? And, and that's for several reasons. That's maybe due to the high cost of land, retrofitting designs. Um, maybe there's conflicts with existing infrastructure. Um, maybe you need more infrastructure, for example, parking lots and, and things of that sort. So, you know, in, in these situations, a lot of developers and communities do go above the ground because it's the easiest way to detain water. Um, but again, as we as we get further into this discussion, you'll see the need for subsurface detention is becoming more common. And so that's the next thing, right? So we've got above ground ponds, surface ponds, and then we have subsurface ponds. Um, and there are a variety of methods in, in today's society for providing underground detention systems. You've got closed pipe systems, you've got chamber systems, crates, vaults, um, even just standard storm pipes. I've seen many engineers just design, over-design their stormwater sewer systems on site so that it can actually store water and then they've got a certain release rate coming off the site. So there are, there are so many different ways to skin the cat per se with underground solutions. Uh, but not all are created equal. Not all are all the same price, right? Um, and not all of them are as easy to install. <clears throat> so we'll start off with pipe systems. Pipe systems is generally one of the most common systems utilized 
because it's probably just it's been around for the longest and it's easy to take a your stormwater piping and use it for detention as well on site. However, um, pipe systems, they can be perforated or they can be solid. And so if they're perforated, keep in mind, now you've got water leaving that, that pipe um, and you've got to store it elsewhere. And so if it's a perforated pipe system, you're going to be utilizing these stone void spaces around your pipe system. And this is very similar to how chamber systems and crate systems work as well. Um, if you can think of a, uh, say, a 10-gallon tank uh, fish tank, okay, and you dump a bunch of crushed stone in that fish tank, and you pour water into that fish tank, what's going to happen? Your water is going to filter through that stone, and it's going to fill in those void spaces in between your rock. And so when we talk about stone porosity or stone void spaces. That's what we're talking about is storing water in between your stone. We're not necessarily talking about a porous stone, right? Water going into your stone, but we're using that void space around the stone to store water as well. So for perforated pipe systems and chamber systems, that's, it's very beneficial because you can drastically reduce the footprint of a detention system. However, with solid pipe, um, you're restricted in only using the volume that's inside of that pipe. Pipe systems can range, I mean, from we've seen, you know, 12 inches all the way up to these large metal pipe systems that are, uh, you know, 120 inches in diameter. Um, so, you know, again, there's, there's many different ways to look at subsurface detention with different products. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's important to understand, though, that when you're looking at different materials, uh, let's just let's just say with pipe in general, uh, the materials that are used should be able to withstand the constant submersion in water, okay, while meeting the product's design service life. So when you're analyzing, uh, say a, a client wants to go with a pipe system and doesn't want to utilize stone void spaces, um, it's very very important to understand the design service life of each product. You've got plastic materials, which, you know, I'll insert ADS right here a little bit, um, but you've got plastic materials like what we manufacture uh, that is an inert material. It's not going to corrode. It won't break down over time. And most of those plastic pipe products that we manufacture have a design service life of 100 years. That's much longer than any of us even care for that system to last, but that's what you're getting, right? Uh, now, I... You know, I'm not really biased because I work for ADS. I keep in mind I worked for a steel manufacturer for nine years, so I've I've kind of been on the steel side as well. Not steel pipe per se, but other steel products. And we know those steel products, whether they're coated, um, that they can rust over time, right? And so it, again, it's very important to make sure that hey, if you're going with, say you're going with a metal pipe system, that you understand the longevity of that system and what you're getting yourself into. Okay? Uh, now, the chamber systems, uh, they, they do utilize the void space within the chamber itself, but just like a perforated pipe system, we are utilizing the stone void spaces around that chamber to store water, okay? And it does a very good job at doing that. And so if you compared the footprint of a pipe system, a solid pipe system with the footprint of, say, an open bottom chamber system, that open bottom chamber system could reduce your footprint 
by say 20 to 30% because you're using the stone void spaces around those chambers. And less excavation is less cost to the developer, right? Quicker installation times, and of course, less area that you have to disrupt on your site. Mm -hmm. So now if, if one is thinking, okay, if you're utilizing the stone void spaces with water, can't that water leave the system around, you know, around the surrounding surrounding areas of that system? And, and absolutely it can. There are certain areas of the country uh, geographically that are great for that. We want infiltration to occur, whether we're recharging the groundwater or we've got some sandy soils that just allow for that water to exit the system. Heck, a lot of the storm tech systems that, uh, which is our chamber system that we supply, some of those don't even have an outlet pipe. So we bring water in and we let that water just basically recharge the ground. Now, there are areas in North Dallas, uh, specifically around DFW Airport, that are notorious for horrible, horrible soils. Um, really fatty clays, um, shrink swell factors of five, six inches. Um, so you don't want that movement, especially if you've got a parking lot over it. And so um, you can actually line your system around the sides and under the system with an impervious liner if that is a factor, if, if poor soils are in the area, so that you do have a watertight system. So again, pipe systems, chamber systems, they can both be watertight, um, but just keep in mind that if you're utilizing the stone void spaces around your actual product, that you can drastically reduce the footprint of of those systems. Wow. Yeah, and you and you mentioned this, uh, you know, when you started the conversation about the the different subsurface. But what are some of the the pros and cons uh, of having these subsurface systems? I mean, you. You mentioned decreased footprint, uh, which obviously means increased development area or, or building footprint, which is actually makes money uh, rather than the, the parking areas and, and great, uh, green spaces. So uh, do you have any other pros and cons that we can look at and, and kind of dissect? Yeah, obviously, you know, usable space is, is the most important one. And yes, uh, you, you kind of alluded to more building space if you decrease the footprint of your system. Keep in mind, you, you do not want uh, underground utilities other than water and sewer going underneath the building, right? Not many civil engineers put storm water systems or storm piping under buildings. It has to happen sometimes. But you're going to design with materials that are basically incorporated into the foundation of that building, if that's the case. Um, so you're going to resist uh, putting anything like this under a building. Um, they can most certainly go under um, parking lots and, and other green spaces, but you do want to avoid that. And it's not, it's not because some of these systems cannot handle um, say a, a building pad, I'm, I'm sure these large concrete vaults, they, they can design a concrete vault for something like that. It basically would act as a basement um, to that building. But say at some point in time, there's a, a maintenance issue with that system. Now your infrastructure above your system could potentially be compromised, right? And so we always try and, you know, as engineers in the engineering community, you avoid doing that for that specific reason. Mm -hmm. So usable space, yes, that is obviously a huge benefit um, for additional buildings, but also being able to pave over top of these systems. 
a couple other things that are, are pros, one of them is maintenance. Uh, you, you say the word maintenance to a developer, uh, they're probably going to cringe and say, well, that's how can maintenance be a uh, benefit to underground detention? Uh, it's very important to understand that unfortunately no underground detention system or method will last forever. Um, it's, they're not maintenance free. And in order to keep them operating properly, this system has to be inspected and maintained periodically. And that's going to differ depending on what product you have in the ground. Uh, it's important to also follow manufacturer recommendations. There are many different chamber manufacturers out there. They're not all created equal. And each manufacturer is probably going to have a different maintenance um, O&M manual associated with that system. However, it's not, again, it's not a disadvantage. With surface ponds, you're going to have to maintain and groom that pond on an annual basis, uh, maybe every week with your landscapers cutting grass around the pond. You're going to have to treat the water if it's, if it's a wet pond. Um, there is a lot of maintenance that goes into that, and it can be an eyesore very, very quick <laughs> if they are not maintained. And we've, we've all seen those large, large detention systems in, in the big parking lots of your, you know, your Sam's Club and your Costco's and things like that. And uh, it's easy. They created a huge hole, but now all that trash gets washed in there. And it, if it's not properly maintained, it, it looks really, really bad. Uh, I wouldn't say underground detention systems are necessarily out of sight, out of mind. They're most certainly in mind, but to the public eye, they're out of sight. So all that trash and that sediment debris that gets washed down into those systems, you're not keeping that visible to the public eye, right? Mm -hmm. now, we'll talk about uh, the maintenance difference between pipe and chamber systems here in a minute. Uh, but the other, the other benefit to underground detention is the ability to uh, bundle water quality and underground detention system in the same type of system. A lot of systems that we see go on the ground, there are no water quality requirements for that site. Maybe that community doesn't have any, uh, but we do see an uptick and an increase in water quality regulations across the country. There are some areas of the country that are very, very strict uh, with water quality requirements and for very good reasons. If you're near an aquifer or a large water source where you're trying to protect your natural resources, that's very important. Um, but if you're in other areas where maybe you just want to keep your, your trash and your sediment out of your streams um, to keep everything more clean, it's not necessarily drinking water, uh, then TSS, your total suspended solid removal, is very important. Now, you can have a unit, a water quality unit that is either inline or offline separate from your detention system. But if I told a client or a customer of ours, if you could bundle underground detention and water quality together and completely scratch the need for an external water quality unit, would you do it? I guarantee you their answer is going to be yes, I would love to do that. How do we accomplish that? Um, here's my ADS plug. So <laughs> with the StormTech chamber isolator row, this is a designated row where each inlet uh, we divert water to a row that is lined with a woven fabric underneath the chamber itself. And it allows water to infiltrate through that fabric, but it leaves all your impurities and all your suspended solids and trash on top of that fabric. 
And what that does for you is it makes maintenance, again, one of the, remember the benefit of having the ability to maintain a system, that's where maintenance is even more of a benefit. And that's in these chamber systems where we can isolate that trash. If you were to compare how that operates with a pipe system in comparison with a pipe system, uh, everything that gets washed into that pipe system is gonna go throughout that entire pipe system. So if you've got a pipe system that has 15 laterals, right? And in several different header pipes, now you're gonna have a crew contracted to go clean that whole entire pipe system. So if you compare a pipe system with a, maybe a chamber system where you've got one row to maintain, that's going to be a lot easier to maintain um, as time moves on. And maintenance is very infrequent. So when you tie um, water quality and maintenance together and you've got to clean these systems, you're only talking maybe on average cleaning these systems once every eight, nine years. And it, again, it depends on your rainfall frequency. Uh, the amount of rainfall, it depends on how long your isolator row is, but it is very infrequent. Uh, we, we usually get a lot of eyebrows raised when we say uh, frequent maintenance and we, we kind of throw out there that once every eight, nine years. <laughs> you have the ability to calculate that, Matt. So if, if someone wanted to talk a little bit more about maintenance, we do have some ways to calculate how often a system most likely would have to be maintained. Yeah, if we could just a, a quick sidebar here, what does that look like? So again, as I alluded to, uh, you know, if we've got uh, a certain flow rate coming into an inlet, um, say five CFS, we know the flow rate capacity of the header pipes coming into our system. So we'll make sure that the layout that we provide the civil um, accounts for those specific flow rates, and then we'll actually appropriately size how many chambers we need in that row to handle that much water coming in. Uh, because as you line that row with a woven fabric, uh, you're water down than if you didn't have a fabric there. Okay, so you have to have that row long enough to handle that amount of water. And then you look at the annual rainfall in that area, you can calculate how much rain you would expect to be washed into that area. Uh, there's some some um, standard methods that we use to account for how much sediment would be washing down that storm drain. And then we can calculate, okay, if, if we were to clean the system out every time the sediment depth in that chamber row across the entire row reached three inches of depth, how long would that take? And that's what we're computating is how long it takes to fill that entire row up with three inches of sediment. And so sometimes you might get less than eight years, you know, it might be once every five years you have to clean it out or it might be longer. Um, and we have done some inspections. We're not a third party inspector, but we've gone back to look at some systems to see how they're, they're working. And uh, I've always been amazed at how little sediment uh, is actually in those rows after years and years of that that system being in service. And what that shows us is that it's just, it's a cleaner site, right? You're not seeing a lot of debris brought in by vehicles and there are some other sites that are gonna be more dirty than others. And so maybe your periodic maintenance is once every two years. Mm -hmm. Now, the way that we clean those out, uh, I say we, the way that contractors can clean those out because we do not offer 
uh, maintenance with those. We don't have a crew at ADS that does that, but it's very easy. Uh, if you can hire a contractor that has a jet vac and a vac truck, they can clean these systems out. You don't have to enter the system at all to clean it. So there's no confined space entry. Everything is done from the surface. Um, and uh, there's some really cool videos on YouTube. You can actually uh, type in StormTech isolator row cleaning and it'll show you the jet vac process where they they have they drop this jet vac down into the chamber and they turn the water pressure on and it shoots itself down to the end of the row and as they start pulling this this jet vac back towards the structure where they're standing it's washing all that sediment and debris back towards the structure where the vac truck is cleaning it out so i know that's a lot of words and i'm trying to describe that process but uh, <laughs> i advise uh, going to YouTube and, and looking at some of those maintenance videos. It's pretty neat and uh, it does an amazing job at capturing debris and sediment. Yeah. If you ever get the chance to nerd out a little bit, definitely check. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's what I was, yeah, that's what I was alluding to is, is what that, what that process looks like. So they kind of have an idea uh, if they're ever to utilize the system, what, what kind of maintenance is there a guy, you know, down there scrubbing? <laughs> but nope, you got a vacuum. Uh, yeah. None of that. Yeah, it's 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 really beneficial not to have to get into a, an underground system if you don't have to for many, many reasons. Sure. Right. Sure. So we talked about the cost of potentially cost of maintenance, but what are some other cost benefits other than you know, like we mentioned, potentially greater income producing areas uh, by being able to extend your parking lot and rearrange your building and maybe have a, a greater footprint. But what are some, uh, when it comes to construction, are there benefits to certain types of systems? Yeah, well, there's there's going to be a disadvantage up front with underground detention systems, and that's the price tag up front. Okay, upfront construction costs. I've, I've never seen the option of going underground more economical than going above ground. It's just not going to happen. Okay. Um, however, again, you look at long term cost, and there is an advantage there, whether that be the reduction of maintenance costs or your usable space. So, whatever way you look at it and boil down your, your benefit, your you're going to benefit long-term from underground detention, but the upfront cost is what may um, dissuade people from going underground. Okay. Um, however, if you plan for it, if you know it's something that you need to do, then it's, it, a lot of developers don't look at it as a disadvantage. In fact, uh, we're part of ICSC, which is the International Council for Shopping Centers. If you're listening to this podcast today and, and you've been involved in that at all, you know um, that there are so many different companies that partake in, in that conference and those deal-making conferences across the country. And uh, we're heavily involved in ICSC on the underground detention realm. And uh, it's great because as a supplier, you know, you don't get a lot of people coming back to you to say, boy, you guys did me a solid, you know, usually it's, oh man, I don't want to have to do this, but I'm going to have to. I can't tell you how many developers come up to us at those deal-making conferences and say, I just want to thank you for giving me this solution. You can't imagine how much money we save. So um, it's great to see because construction costs 
are never positive, right? Unless you can actually save someone money. And uh, that's most certainly what we want to do. We want to obviously give the best solution and save, save people money. So when we talk about construction costs, um, there's many different ways to boil this down. You can look at materials versus materials, and you can look at your actual cost to construct one of these systems. And different materials are going to require, uh, even if it's the same, say you're, you're detaining 10,000 cubic feet, uh, your construction cost is probably going to differ if you're installing a pipe system versus a chamber system. Uh, some of these systems are much quicker to install. They're easier to install and they require less equipment. So when we look at costs, you can look up at your upfront construction costs and you can look at your long-term costs, okay? Um, I would say material for material, depending on what, what uh, type of materials are being used, pipe systems and chamber systems are usually going to be pretty comparable. Um, again, you got to keep in mind that not all products are created equal and you got to understand the service life associated with them. So, you know, at ADS, we may not always be the cheapest option, uh, but we're not the cheapest material by, by any means, right? We hold ourselves a little bit higher than obviously our, our competition and for many, many different reasons. And uh, sometimes our competition beats us out because of cost and cost alone. And that's just something that, you know, we, again, we have to deal with because we, we do have products that we back and that we know are going to last. Um, however, when we look at, let's, let's look at chambers and, and pipe directly. If you eliminate the need for heavy equipment to install a system, such as a chamber system, you're going to be able to install that system a lot quicker. Um, now, granted, you're probably going to have an excavator on site to dig your hole and everything, but you don't need that excavator to be setting pipe, homing the pipe together. You're talking about setting chambers by hand. And so, again, here's a little bit of an ADS plug again, but when we look at the construction costs and the benefits associated with chambers versus pipe systems, it's very important to understand. And again, we're not the only chamber manufacturer out there. So this is just talking in general terms of chambers versus pipe. Um, and so if you've got these really large pipe systems, uh, they, they would require larger equipment to set those pipe systems. And we do have pipe systems at ADS. We, we call it Landmax, and uh, we can either use our, our HP Storm polypropylene pipe or our HDPE pipe. And yes, if you are using the 60 inch diameter or even some smaller diameter where you can't set that pipe by hand, you're gonna be using equipment to set it. And, your construction costs are probably gonna be a little bit higher because it's gonna take longer to set. Now, a lot of developers do, and engineers for that matter, do think that uh, there, there's a perception out there that metal is the cheapest option for underground detention. Um, and I'm not necessarily knocking metal, but it, while it can be true in certain parts of the country, um, you know, cheap isn't always the best option. And so I, I always discourage, and. This is easy for me to say because it's not my money that's being spent, right? Uh, so for a developer, I completely understand where they're coming from. If they've got a material that is cheaper over another, they want, they want the cheapest option. But it's important to understand that cheap does not equal quality, okay? And so always be cautious of that. If you're um, impressed by what you see and you're comfortable with it and you got a great cost, that's great. At the end of the day, the developer wins if they're happy with the cost and the product that goes in the ground. 
you've got to consider not just um, if something goes wrong, how is that going to affect your system? You have to make sure that if something goes wrong, how is that going to affect all the infrastructure above that system? So if you pave over that system or you've got a patio over that system or a playground and you start to have issues with that underground detention system, how is your infrastructure above that system going to be sacrificed if the underground detention system does not perform as expected? So it's very, very important to look at construction costs, maintenance costs. Um, but if something goes wrong with that system and you have costs associated with your infrastructure above that system, how can those costs be affected by what you put under the ground, right? Prime example of that, Matt, is our stormwater piping used throughout the world, right? How do potholes get created? Most of most potholes, right? And I mean, there's parts of the country where your freeze fall cycles are horrible and they they pop, you know, asphalt really easily. But if you've got a sinkhole, it's generated by a utility underground, whether it be a water main or a storm sewer that is has poor joint performance. So not only has your pipe system been affected, but now your roadway or your parking lot is affected. So these things can just compile on top of one another if you have not really vetted the best material to put underground. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, that's that's uh, something that probably make yeah, the idea of, of developing a property pretty difficult because you have to weigh cost-benefit analysis on pretty much everything along the way. And, and no, those are great points for sure. So there's so much that goes into this. And you alluded to that earlier. You said, you know, there's there's a lot that goes into determining the runoff, and uh, sometimes I call it voodoo, but it's what we do. And and it's you know, if it's done right, it's usually uh, benefited the public. So how do you stay on top of of all this? Uh, it's got to be pretty tough. Yeah, you know, um, when I when I came to ADS, I had. Uh... I had an overabundance of crash courses on our innovative products. And, and when you work for a company like ADS, uh, you know, where each product of ours is a sustainable one, it's innovative, and we're constantly innovating on top of what we currently do. So it's, uh, it's fun actually to stay on top of this because uh, we're constantly getting new products. Um, we're, we're changing our, our manufacturing techniques to be more economical and efficient with our, with our manufacturing processes. And so uh, it's enjoyable to stay on top of. And the way that we do that is obviously, you know, uh, plant tours. We'll go to our plant. We'll talk with plant personnel about what they're doing differently. And uh, we also do a lot of internal training. And so when we have new product lines come out, the first thing we're doing before, obviously, they're even released to the public is we're training internally to make sure that we know exactly uh, what this product entails and the markets that we can um, offer these solutions to. But um, it's it's just constant training on our end as well. Um, you know, the one thing that I do to stay on top of my industry as well here locally, um, since I don't cover, you know, I don't cover, I, I'm more regional than than anything. Uh, here in North Texas, but um, I work with a lot of municipalities around the area. And what I do with them is, is on my own time, I'm researching their design specifications and construction details 
so that I can better understand what their local requirements are. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I start a discussion with a city that uh, maybe has only allowed one specific product in the past and we're trying to gain an approval there, if I haven't done my homework, I'm going to have a very difficult time talking to that city about, hey, you know, here's what we can do for you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it really helps determine where we need to put our focus so that we can work on initiatives to further uh, advance our footprint, right? Um, and it also helps me understand, you know, if people have um, any hesitation with a specific application or uh, method of, say, detaining underground um, detention systems and, and detaining water in those detention systems, it really helps me understand uh, how to help them understand the benefits associated with the solutions that we can provide. So. You know, a lot of, Matt, a lot of internal training, but a lot of training on our own to, to really better understand our industry. Right. Yeah, there's a lot to it, like you said, and you're covering a, a very large, you say region, but it's, Texas is a big one. <laughs> so It is, and, yeah. you know, we have a lot of institutes that do a lot of training as well. Um, the Plastic Pipe Institute is, uh, is one institute that has really upped their training and uh, they'll go into everything. I mean, we'll dive into the weeds and it's training that's available to anyone that wants to sign up for it, really. Uh, but they'll, they get a little more into the weeds of the engineering behind the product itself. So it's not which, for everyone. It's not for everyone. <laughs> um, if you can't sleep at night, uh, you can go and read the design manual if you so choose. But it's, it's very interesting because you, you know, you're, as, as civil engineers, we're engineering stormwater solutions in general. And then you look at the product that you're utilizing, that you're specifying, or if it's unspecified, maybe the, the, the product that the contractor chooses at the end of the day or that the developer wants to see. And then you look at the engineering behind the product. It's, it, it's great. I mean, it's, it's really neat to see when you dive into the weeds and you look at uh, just product for product, what uh, what goes into the engineering behind it. So, uh, you know, we we do a lot of extensive testing in house on all of our products. Um, we and so when we talk about design service lives, uh, you know, you you don't put a product in the ground and wait a hundred years to see if it's it's properly working after a hundred years, right? But there's testing processes that you can put those products through that actually speeds up that installation and that uh, that in-service time. And you can basically mimic how that product is going to last in a certain lifespan. So um, that's how we can determine specific, um, you know, design service life with our products. So that's another neat thing that uh, to go into with some of our application engineering that training that we do. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I appreciate all your time here. I wanted to give you a second to you know tell everybody how they can find out more about yourself, uh, Steve, and then ADS uh, if if they want to learn a little bit more about uh, some of the products that you guys have. Well, I appreciate it, Matt. And uh, again, thank you for having me on today. Of course, uh, my contact information is going to be, be available by you uh, mm-hmm. with this podcast. Uh, but if you need to identify the ADS representative in your area, whether it be one of my counterparts, one of our engineers, or a sales rep, uh, you can actually go to our website and uh, where you can uh, click on, I think it's contact us. 
you can actually search by your region and your county and your state, and you can find every sales rep uh, in our company with a nice pretty picture as well. So when you reach out to us, you've got a face to the name. So uh, we do have some guys that are, are moving here and there, but that it should be um, pretty current if you go to the website. So um, again, we, we appreciate uh, the time here, Matt. And um, for everyone listening, hopefully this was educational. Try not, in, not getting too detailed, but uh, you know there, there's a lot of options out there. And uh, I, I highly advise reaching out to your civil engineer and, uh, and don't be afraid to mention this type of stuff, right? I, I watched a podcast on this and that. You know, have you guys ever thought about these solutions? Because a lot of engineers may be fairly green in their career, and they may not know all of the solutions that are the out there. Yeah. Highly advise working with your engineer, and don't be afraid to um, think that you're stepping into their field uh, where you, you know you're going to recommend products. We do a lot of work with the development community, Matt, and um, we work with developers very closely. And we'll actually help developers find civil engineers that that best suit them. So um, it's a it's a big benefit when when we're working with basically every level developers, owners, engineers. And so this is this is why we you know work so close with the development community so that we can provide that technical assistance um, to make this process as smooth and enjoyable as we can. Yeah. Definitely. Like you said, could be green or they could be uh, set in their ways and you know, yep. uh, need, need some new, new ideas. So absolutely. Yeah. Perfect. I appreciate it. Steve, we'll uh, talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you, Matt. Take care.